Yeah, so now I've started this coaching and developmental editing service. So for memoir specifically or creative nonfiction specifically. So if you're having trouble with your memoir, either getting it off the ground or you have a full manuscript, I have services for you. Um, if it's getting off the ground, I'd love to coach you through structure, through theme, through goals, through finding that golden thread to make the memoir something that people want to read. If you've already gotten a manuscript and you need someone to take a deep dive into that manuscript and develop and develop it better for editors or publishers, I have services now for you to do that. I, I would love to work with you. You can find all of these services at casejohnston.com or you can write me at casejohnston.com at gmail.com. I'd love to work with any memoirs, any essays, any collections of essays. So go ahead and reach out. Uh, Case, go ahead and spell Johnston. Cause... Oh, absolutely. It's uh, K-A-S-E-J-O-H-N-S-T-U-N.com or J-O-H-N-S-T-U-N-K-A-S-E at gmail.com. Reach out with any questions. Thanks. Awesome. This is Case Johnston. This is the Literally Podcast. We are uh, brought, we are broadcasting from Banyan One in the Monarch on Historic 25th Street in Ogden, Utah. And that is, I nailed that intro better than I ever thought I would, having only recorded it two or three times in the last year. Today we have a guest. Uh, her name, her it's author Val- Valerie Miner. I'm going to read her long bio, um, and I, I suggest pick up any of her work anytime you can. Uh, Valerie Miner is the award-winning author of 15 books. Uh, Bread and Salt Short Fiction is forthcoming in 2020. It's actually out. I have it. Um, Her latest novel is Traveling with Spirits. Other novels include After Eden, Range of Light, A Walking Fire, Winter's Edge, Blood Sisters, All Good Women, Movement, A Novel and Stories, and Murder in the English Department. Her short fiction books include Abundant Light, The Light, the Night Singers, and Trespassing. Her collection of essays is Rumors from the Cauldron, Selected Essays, Reviews, and Reportage. Um, Valerie Miner's work has appeared in the Georgia Review, Sal Magundi, uh, New Letters, Plowshares, The Village Voice, Prairie Schooners, uh, and Mary, many more. Um, a number of her pieces have been dramatized on BBC Radio 4. Her collaborative work includes books, museums, exhibits, as well as theater. Her work has been translated into German, Turkish, Danish, Italian, Spanish, French, Swedish, and Dutch. That's six more languages than my work has been published in. Um, she has won, won fellowships and awards from the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, I don't know how to say it. Fondazione. Is that correct? Fondazione. Okay. Uh, Bogliasco, the Brown Foundation, Fonduccion Valparaiso, the, the, fact, the McKnight Foundation, the NEA, the Jerome Foundation, the Heinz Foundation, the Australia Council Literary Arts Board, and numerous others. She's had a Fulbright Fellowship to Tunisia, India, and Indonesia. Winner of the Distinguished Teaching Award, she has taught for over 25 years and is now an artist in residence and professor at Stanford University. She travels internationally giving readings, lectures, and workshops. She and her partner live in San Francisco and Mendocino County, California. Um, As a a quick intro to uh, Valerie, she was my first advisor at Pacific University. Um, and I, as I've, I, and this is, this won't be a surprise to her when I say this, cause I've written this to her many times over the last decade that, um, my writing, when she met it, I, in my opinion, felt skeletal. Um, but Valerie was the perfect voice and teacher to tell me that in a way that was kind, nurturing, 
and also um, uh, what what am I looking for? Kind, nurturing, and um, motivating. motivating. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Um, so I wanted to thank her publicly for that as well. Uh, today, Valerie's going to start with a reading from the new short story collection. Co collection, am I right? That's right. Absolutely. Um, and then when after that, I have a few questions. So go ahead. Okay. Thanks so much, Case. It's really lovely to see you again. This is from uh, Bread and Salt. It's a story that's been abbreviated uh, because of the time of the podcast. It's called Coming Through. <clears throat> and uh, many of us have had this uh, similar experiences in the past, at least been in, in this environment in the past, but because of COVID, we haven't been there for a while. Um, said at an airport, coming through. As the plane finally settles at the gate, you pull on your warm black coat, returning to the tundra. You edge toward the exit, bracing for that blast of winter air between plane and gangway. Three tortuous hours squeezed between a bickering couple while, their child, <clears throat> while the child behind you kicks your seat to the rhythm of the Lion King seeping from his earbuds. You offer to let the couple sit together. No way, they say in unison. You address the child and then his father about the foot progression. Each stares back blankly as if you are hallucinating. The flight attendant swears he has no empty seats. Finally, you leave them all behind. Relief is short-lived. Inside the clangorous terminal, you remember your four-hour layover. If all goes well, you'll get to frigid Minneapolis at midnight. Okay, so you're a seasoned veteran of Greyhound Airlines. You know how to handle this. Keep busy. There's plenty of unfinished work. You, lo you laboriously roll your heavy bag, then voila, an abandoned luggage cart. You unload and glide along, searching for a restaurant where you can read charts on your laptop. Just last night in Orange Blossom Land, this reunion with your oldest friend in her favorite South Beach Cafe is the reward for that boring conference, a sweet and swanky night. After her second glass of wine, Janice smiles mischievous, mischievously. Tomorrow, love, where did you find that dreary coat? Uh, it's a basic black coat, versatile, mid-calf, slimming, you say, taking in Janice's mauve mohair jacket over her emerald green shift. Tomorrow, really, you look like a nun. Come on, you argue. It's practical, chic, like a basic black dress. See how the red brightens up the, the red scarf brightens it up? Okay, a post-Vatican II nun, she laughs. Honestly, Pam, it reminds me of the, cross, <clears throat> of the coats our moms wore to synagogue. Next time I'm in the cities, we're going shopping, and I'll introduce you to the 21st century. I'd like that, you grin. Sometimes you envy her Florida adventure, but your parents are frail and you can't leave St. Paul. Janice, whose parents are cruising the Mediterranean, calls your filial attentiveness saintly, but as the only child, it's just your job. The new terminal, they say, will be state-of-the-art. Right now, it's a chaotic construction site with culinary choices ranging from the dismal to forget it. You opt for sushi. Sushi at a Midwestern airport? Hmm, maybe not the best idea. Well, you feel like a light meal in a large Sapporo, and they allow you to wheel in the luggage cart. Focus, Tamar. Opening your laptop, you ignore tomorrow's charts and feel called to scrub your inbox, a perfect task for the interstices of life. You do a search for Jonathan and delete all his messages 
as he deleted you from his life last month? Would it be so easy to erase long loss or longing? Now on to work. Too soon the sushi and more disappointingly the Sapporo are finished. There's a lot more email, but weary travelers hover hungrily eyeing your table. You bust your plate and start strolling. Still 4,000 more steps to walk today. Bargain ticket. Why did George get you the cheapest seat? A lousy middle spot all the way from Miami. You've only been pleasant to George, offering lifts when his jalopy breaks down, soliciting his thoughts on designs. He manages great bookings for Dan and Angus and Lloyd. Half the time, they're bumped up to first class and get passes to those sleek airline lounges. It's not some sort of sexist thing on George's part. Of course it is. Just buck up. At least you have a job and a free luggage trolley. Exercise will clear your head. You push the cart from one terminal to the next, past, <clears throat> past shops selling briefcases, cell phones, expensive men's clothing. It's good to stretch your legs after three days of panels and board meetings. The airport is packed with stranded winter holiday families, tired children, and even more exhausted adults. So many passengers are dressed in pastels, perhaps an, an ancient pagan reflex to appease the gods of winter darkness. Still, you can't imagine wearing pastel to an airport. Excuse me, miss, an old man steps close, grabbing your arm anxiously. You're a little annoyed, then you sense his panic. Are, are you okay? You work for the airlines, right? He's breathless, flushed. Or the airport? No, sorry to disappoint, I'm just a passenger. Oh, I thought with a black uniform and all. You will never tell Janice this story. Sorry, he's trembling now. Sorry to bother. He turns away. Hold on, you reach for his bony shoulder. Is something wrong? Well, he whispers hoarsely, I lost my wife. You take his hand. Misplaced, he adds quickly. She's not dead or anything. His voice winds higher and fainter. I told her to let the children visit us for Christmas. I bet she's fine. Let's look for traveler's aid. See that desk there? You guide him closer. They'll call her name over the loudspeaker. Drained but resolute, the old man pivots toward the desk. He walks away without saying goodbye. You stride for another 20 minutes, <clears throat> 3,000 steps decide to look for a seat where you can review Monday's meeting agenda. Bingo, an empty gate. Your concentration lasts exactly 40 minutes. Resume walking. Why did they leave your ear, why did you leave your earbuds at home? A little music would muffle all this clanking, buzzing, sneezing, coughing, clattering. The overhead TVs blare alarm about a snowstorm in New England. A man in a shiny green gabardine suit leans against a pillar shouting into his cell phone. You imagine he's a giant frog. Are you losing your mind? People more sensible than you, black, Asian, Latino, white, young, the whole world are sequestered between headphones or engrossed by paperbacks deep in survival mode. Abruptly, a boarding pass is thrust in your face. You're startled, then you regard the woman, perhaps 25, perhaps North African or Middle Eastern, wearing a black hijab, long navy dress, and holding a hefty toddler. You recall Janice's crack about the nun, a hand of Fatima dangles from a gold chain around the woman's neck. Poor thing is terrified, worn out, lugging her son in a battered houndstooth satchel. Flight, she demands, where? Immediately, you understand you may be her last resort. When you discover the flight leaves in 20 minutes, you're sure of it. 
Must hurry, she frowns on the verge of tears. Late, very late. Yes, you nod, but you'll be fine. You say this with your eyes as well. Doubtful, exhausted, she shifts the boy higher with her right arm. The knuckles on her left are white from gripping the valise. Here, you adjust the luggage cart. We can put your bag in front of mine. She regards you suspiciously. But you are, after all, some kind of airline agent, so she accepts the offer, relief flooding her face. Your son, you point to the upper rack, then touch his foot lightly. He can sit here. Her eyes widen, shaking her head vehemently. She reaches for the valise. Okay, okay, you say softly, holding up your palms. Just the bag. She nods as if she's given you something. Gate B23, you whistle. That's pretty far. She stares at you anxiously, almost angrily. Cleveland, more upbeat now. You speak slower. Going to Cleveland. Cleveland, Ohio, she answers solemnly. You point to the Terminal B sign. Cleveland, here we come. Every, every gate is crowded, with vacation refugees dumped between delayed flights. In a corner, a group of 10 or 12 South Asian women lie on the floor, sound asleep. Coming through, you call, then louder. Boarding flight. Where did you get this lingo? The human sea parts for you, the young mother and her squirming son. Several people approach with questions, but you wave them away politely. <clears throat> Emergency, boarding flight, a controlled professional tone. Two wheelchair caddies eye you skeptically, then shrug to each other. You don't care. Coming through, the food court presents special obstacles as dazed passengers stand, immobilized by bright lights at Cinnabons, TCBY yogurt, and Starbucks. The air is ripe with salt, sugar, and cooking oil. Good thing you didn't have that second Sapporo. You're high enough. Coming through, suddenly you slow for the woman to catch up. She puts one hand on the cart as if she's still worried you'll make off with her, her bag. The boy is sniffling now on the verge of meltdown. Threading past McDonald's and Chili's, and Chili's you enter B-Terminal and show your companion. She nods, blinks. A man waves eagerly. Really, you can only handle one passenger at a time. Oh, that old guy. He's raising his wife's hand and salute. Merry Christmas, he shouts. Happy New Year, you cry back, glad for their reunion. Coming through, you call again. You haven't had this much fun in ages. Final call, flight 78 to Cleveland. A broken voice crackles over the loudspeaker. You can barely make out the words. How could this young woman understand? You roll, the, up the, you roll the cart up to the queue. Cleveland, you're grinning. Cleveland, the young woman sighs. You hand her the bag. Have a safe. Before you finish, she's rushing down the, clank, the gangway, balancing bag and baby. No wave, no thank you. Why should there be? It's all in the night's work. 60 more minutes until the Minneapolis flight. You brush off your coat, turn the cart around, and wait. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie. I, I'm glad you read that one. Um, that was one of my favorites in the collection. Uh, and I was going to talk about that one uh, on my list of questions already because it's a, it's a fun one. That's a funny one. Um, 
there were multiple times while reading it that I that I that I giggled because of this woman's experience from you know a tight cramped um, airplane with the, the with the young boy kicking her in the back to helping the young boy and his mother through the airport um, and then at the end taking her her role so seriously and I think my favorite line of the entire part of the story was where she says to to uh, in summary that well I, I can only do one thing at a time because you know I'm busy with my job here um i i really enjoyed that one um does this one come from your years of of travel and living in airports or where did the, where did this one stem from yes uh, i i've spent too much time in too many airports and one of the blessings of this dreadful year has been that i haven't had to go to an airport um i, I do like to see friends and my friends live in far away places and that's the only way I get to see them, but the airplanes are becoming increasingly un, un, uninviting, and the airports themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why? What? What about the airplanes? I mean, I feel I feel the same way, um, um, and I think a lot of people know, but for people listening to us, what is for a lifelong traveler like yourself? What? What have you seen? What evolution have you seen in an airplane travel over the last twenty or thirty years? Well, I know this will sound really uh, outdated, but, you know, you, people used to dress up to go on an airplane. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, now I wear a pair of jeans and an old shirt. And, you know, I, I take a bath before I get on. Right. Uh, but it's uh, it's something where people, they it's become a utilitarian experience. Mm-hmm. And for, for people, I mean, I think it's important for those of us who do travel to realize we have the privilege of being able to do this and mm-hmm. that it is expensive and many people don't even have a shot at it. Right. But um, for those of us who do it for work, um, you know, the airports are crowded. Um, the security people do their best, but often they screw up. Um, you know, you're always behind the person who's never taken a flight in his life before yeah. and takes 45 minutes to put things on the, right. on the conveyor belt. Um, and when you get to the flight, uh, people are eager to get to their seats. They have these leaking uh, headphones, as was discussed in that story. Um, it just is a kind of endurance test. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, it, 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 there are many wonderful things about the fact that um, people can fly all over the world and can can be reunited with family and, and good friends, but the the, the venue, um, the, the medium is not the message I want anyway. Yeah, and I, find, I think what you said was really interesting about it becoming a an exercise in endurance where it used to be something enjoyable to get on a plane, you know? Um, I used to remember just thinking, loving it, you know, as, as a fun experience to fly, and now as a claustrophobe, um, I struggle, you know, I struggle really heavily with it and I end up paying through the nose to make sure that I can avoid, uh, anxiety and panic attacks, um, because of the situations that the new planes put me in. Um, and even if you pay through the nose, they, they, they seem at times to, um, even screw you that way, you know, like saying, well, we've, we've, your ticket was, we're going to put you in the middle anyways. And, um, so I found, I found this, I found this short story really fun, um, and honest, um, because of this, this, 
this passenger's journey from the flight to, you know, enjoying herself in an airport, actually helping other people. Um, uh, so, I, and of course, all the discussion about how, how addressing um, and her friend and how, how that kind of foreshadowed what was coming later as to be thought of as uh, as someone who works at the as, as 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 someone who works at the airport to assist them um and this was a short one and this kind of leads me into my next question because some of the some of the short stories um within this book are quite a bit longer and some are quite a bit shorter and um but the shorter ones i in my opinion um carried the same amount of weight as the longer ones do um and as somebody who's not much of a short story writer um could you talk to us about your process in putting together a book like this, um, um, a collection and saying, okay, this is my collection and this is the theme of it all. Um, and now I'm ready to put it all together. Could you, um, like I said, for someone who doesn't write short stories, I mean, this is um, something that I can share with my students to help them out when they ask me questions. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, the stories are set in Tunisia and India and Turkey and Italy and France and different parts of the U.S. Um, and uh, I think that in putting them together, I saw that, that that travel, of course, was an important part of the book. In some ways, it's a it's an ideal book um, to be to be commercial about it to come out during this uh, terrible COVID siege. Yeah, absolutely. People are not traveling, so they can travel through the book. Mm -hmm. I've had a number of readers say that to me. Um, but so putting a book together is a really um, difficult business in the sense that you need to choose which stories um, and which stories to put where. And what I tried to do, people often say, put your best story first and put your second best story last. And um, what I did with this one was... Um, I put at the end a, a novella, um, it, which is not to say it's the second best story, but it, it seemed to fit best there um, after people had a, had a chance to experience these different forms, microfiction and, and longer fiction and, and different um, emotions and different uh, styles. Some of the, some of the story, stories are whimsical, some of the stories are um, tragic, um, some of the stories are, are um, serious but fun. Um, and what I tried to do also was to um, organize the stories with regard to length so that you'd have one longer story and then maybe a shorter one and then a longer one and, and a shorter one. And I don't know why some stories are longer and some are shorter. I have no idea that they do. They end when they end. Yeah. And I and think I, I think that's my a part of my question, too, is I've tried to write short stories. Um, but they always turn into novels that end up on my on my laptop for years and years. You know, um, um, what what is it? I mean, when you're thinking about a short story and writing one, um, when you have that catalytic moment to get started, do you, do you? I mean, I think you almost already answered this, but do you know when you get started how long each one will be, or do they? Or do you just let them? Um, do you just write until you feel like it's done? I think I have a sense that one is going to be longer. You know, the the first uh, story in the book is set in Italy. It's about a woman who's surviving, as we say, uh, breast cancer, and she's decided to change her life and move to Italy and become a singer at a trattoria. And she lives in a, a pension 
um, with a, a group of expatriates, international uh, people from Finland and, and from Armenia and so forth. And I knew that to care, to cover all of those people, it was going to be a long story. Right. With this one, I knew that the, the point was to kind of get in and out, you know, to kind of show her. Nobody wants to spend too much time in an airport. Mm. Uh, so I didn't want to insult my readers or make them uncomfortable. Um, I'd say that the difference between a, a writing a novel and writing short stories, I mean, there are a lot of differences, but for me, writing a short story is more like choreography. Um, it's about movement. It's about music. And a novel is more like a piece of architecture. Mm. And um, you need to know how this door leads to that room and how that room has a stairway and what's in the attic, um, which is often the backstory. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I'm, I have to say the short story is my favorite, favorite form to write, mm -hmm. um, but I've wound up doing a lot of novels as well. And I'd say one of the differences between the two forms as a writer, um, writing a novel is like being married. I mean, you're, you're with these people for years and years and, and writing short stories, it's like having a series of love affairs. Mm -hmm. You know, you get engaged with this character and, and then you think, is this going to be longer? Is this going to be like a long-term relationship or is this going to be a fling? And then suddenly somehow it ends and then you move on to the next character. And I think you do have to love your characters, even though they're all flawed mm -hmm. and fallible people. That's great. That's a great way. Uh, thank you for that. I, I, like I said, I've I've never been able to master the short story, even write the short story. Um, I spend a lot of my time writing essays, and I think you captured what I feel about an essay: is that I can live with this essay for a few months, and I can polish it, and I can make it so that it feels round and full. Um, and uh, with a novel or a memoir. You're right. I mean, this is a day in, day out marathon that you've committed yourself to. Um, and where the essay, I feel like I can, I don't know, if it's not good, I can abandon it. And that takes the stress off of it uh, compared to a memoir or a novel. Um, and that I wanted to go back to the first story that you talk about, um, uh, Il Piccolo Tesoro. Um, mm -hmm. And I felt like I really enjoyed this one because of those relationships, because of those international um, voices that come into this one uh, with this one home um, where they all get to know each other really, really well and they miss each other when they go back home to visit family. And um, I really enjoyed that feeling of it and listening to what you're saying about um, what you believe belongs in the story is you're right. Once you introduce all those characters, we need to know, kind of almost see most of their arcs through the protagonist's eyes. And I thought that within that story, it, it, it felt really real that way um, because at the end, and you, you'll all have to pick up the, the book. Um, you can find it at ValerieMinor.com. Um, in the end, you feel like, okay, this is a family. This is a family who has shared these walls um, and Valerie here has given us all of their different voices in a sense. and that's what's hard too is with short stories too what I struggle with is if you have a lot of different voices it's hard to to delineate the differences between them so quickly and I thought by bringing in all of these expats um, that was done uh, really well just from a reader's perspective um, and so you're right I mean you couldn't do that story in 
you couldn't do that story in a thousand words. That would be that would be impossible, and your readers would be asking at the end, "Well, why would why would that happen?" Um, where in this one, I feel like the readers at the end say, "Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense that this this homeowner would make this decision um, or make these decisions at towards the end of the story." Um, so I want to talk about I do want to talk about uh, bread and salt about the the title the title story of the book. I um, mean, you said this was a novella because it was quite a, it's it's longer, um, and I I hope you don't mind if I give away the ending of this one at least no. thematically, um, because I was really struck by it. Um, I this story and I'll introduce it really quickly and then I'll, I'll ask Valerie to talk about it. But this story is a love story uh a love story over years and years and years through the mind of the protagonist and i think it touches so heavily on um the way our minds work in the sense that time really is short between experiences um um, and i wanted to see i wanted to ask if you could expand on you know, this short story, it's conceptualization and then you, how you got to the end, because the end struck me as the, the most, the last paragraph struck me as the most real ending to a short story I've read in a really long time. Um, because it was so human, um, in the sense that if the protagonist goes through decades of missing somebody and in a, in a very, very nutshell of all of it, um, that somebody finally reaches out and the protagonist um, later in years after all of these thoughts about this uh, lo- uh, previous lover that, um, well, you know, there's, st- there's time and I don't need to be, I don't need to be, um, I don't know what, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but I don't need to act on this immediately. Cause I can always, I can always send, send the email back in a couple of days. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about bread and salt a bit and how, this all came about this back and forth between Tunisia and, and, and the States and um, where you came up and if that ending came to you first or if the beginning came to you first, sorry, that was a long question. (laughs) Yeah. Um, huh. I think the middle came, I think the middle came to me first and thank you. It was a very good, wonderful reading of the story. Um, and I'm glad you liked the end. I, 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 uh, I worried about the end, but I, I thought as, as you said, it was a human and, um, and uh, it's it's a story about a, a woman. It starts out as a middle-aged woman who is has been brought back to Tunisia. She's uh, works in a museum and she um, works on um, Andalusian materials. And as many people know, um, many of the people who uh, were kicked out of of Spain, the, the Muslims who were kicked out of Spain. Uh, at the same time that the Jews were kicked out of Spain, um, the Muslims moved to North Africa, mm-hmm. actually, as did a number of the Jewish people. Um, and so um, a lot of the, the the motifs in Tunisian and Morocco um, are Andalusian, uh, taken from southern Spain. Um, and so she's, she's invited to this because that's her, her area of expertise. She developed it. Um, when she was much younger, uh, partially because she had fallen in love with this man from Tunisia. And um, for, they are separated for about five years, and they um, wind up coming together in Paris for a really dramatic set of experiences. 
and then they're separated. And then many years later, she returns to Tunisia. Oh, and she's always wondered what happened to him. Mm -hmm. Meantime, she's married. She's had a daughter. She's divorced. She imagines that he has five wives and 49 children. Mm -hmm. um, and she doesn't really know what happened to him. Um, and so the, the story really, I, I think, started with this idea of um, the, the possibility or impossibility of intercultural love. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I I realized that it was, was going to be a very, it was going to take over their lives. So eventually that's why it became a novella. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the, the story starts with her returning to Tunisia after many years, uh, having been invited to, to work in a museum in Karawan. Uh, which is the fourth holiest city in all of Islam after Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. Um, and um, it um, it starts out with a reference to the um, bombing at the Atoka mm -hmm. railway station in Spain, where many people were killed. And the, the railway bombing was later attributed to people from North Africa. And, and the ringleader, in fact, was someone from Tunisia. And one of the names uh, of the perpetrators is very similar to the name of the man she was in love with. And so she fears that somehow he was involved in this. Um, so that's um, those are some of the issues that come up in it. And one of the things that I was interested in is this experience that my Tunisian friends have of, especially those who've been educated abroad, primarily in France, because that's their, their second language. Mm -hmm. um, this experience they have of going back to Tunisia and not really feeling that they belong there. They're a little bit too cosmopolitan. But then when they go back to France, they don't belong there because of all the racism. Right. And so I wanted to talk about these people who kind of live in limbo. And um, Anouar, the man, is, is one of those people. So th th those are some of the issues that came up in, in the story. And the reason the case that, that I think it's so long is that I um, kept sharing it with my writing group and they kept asking me more questions. Yeah. <laughs> I had to try to find out what the answers to those questions were. Yeah. And I do think that the, every story and, and every novel finds its natural ending. I don't think most writers, or at least I don't, think, okay, this is going to be 375 pages, or this is going to be 79 pages. Mm -hmm. um, I think the story finds its end. Yeah. No, I, I, I really was intrigued by the story, too, because there was there was the time within the story where where Anwar discusses, you know, being spat on in Paris and, and yelled at and called names and um, and says, you know, I got to get out of here. And that what that was so tied into the protagonist's thought of maybe he was somebody that was able to hurt other people in Madrid because of what happened in Paris so long ago and the anger that he displayed with the protagonist. Um, and I thought that that, that moment of, that moment of doubt that you bring up within the protagonist saying, could he have done that? That is in itself is so real too, is so human. And the story, while it was a novella, it read very short to me, uh, because of, because of the pacing of it all. And I wanted to find out, do, do these two reconnect, right? Do these two reconnect, um, with their love because they had a nice love. And then of course life happens, um, which is life, right? Which is, the reality of it which is the authenticity of this story and at the end i just love it so much where she finally gets the answer no he didn't hurt people 
and yes, he wants to meet for coffee someday or drinks and we can, we can spark this again. And then she says to herself as a grown person who's lived life, well, you know what? I don't have to be hasty right now. I can wait. Um, and I loved that ending that way. Um, and so I, I, I was really drawn to the story, um, for all of that. Um, and, and, uh, because, because too, it reminds me of, I've, you know, I've heard stories in life where I have a friend whose parents were married since the time he was, well, before he was born and they divorced when they were in their seventies. And then they ended up marrying their high school, um, boyfriend or girlfriend in their seventies. And I remember them putting on Facebook a, a photo of their wedding saying, you know, we were dating just yesterday, but it had been a span of four, six, 50 years. And I just feel like that the story encapsulated that humanity where time is, time is so short and the way in which we see things, um, relationships, especially, that they can still be so raw and real with us even after 30 or 40 years. And maybe that's why it spoke to me personally. Maybe I'm bringing my own schema into the, into the discussion, but that's, that was something that was really, really came forward for me when reading it. Well, it's important for, to hear that. You know, I think I, I really believe that after a book is written, it belongs to the readers. And mm -hmm. I say to my students, you know, so there are 15 people in this seminar and we're reading this book. Um, there are 15 different books. Um, so what we, what a, a reader brings to the book is um, just as important as what a writer may have intended or may have experienced. I don't think I intend things so much as I discover things as I write. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I just say about that uh, novella is that it is the title story. And bread and salt in an Arab tradition um, is a way, if you have shared a meal of bread and salt, um, if, if you've just met with someone, people often say to you, um, now there will be no animosity between us or we will always be friends. But the image of bread and salt is, is really multicultural. I mean, in England and uh, Northern England and in Scotland, people on New Year's Day bring bread and salt and coal um, to people's houses. And, and in Russia, there's this tradition of um, <clears throat> bread and salt being part of hospitality. And in fact, the word for hospitality in Russian, klebosene, literally means bready, salty. Mm. So you know, I think that um, this idea of bread, something that nurtures you, and salt being something that flavors the story um, is, is a kind of international image. Right. And you could probably take that religiously, too, if you wanted to look at, like... Um you know, through Christianity and other religions too, about this idea of breaking bread and, and, and salt and, and how, um, that, that ties culturally to across the world. Um, I have another question and then after it's, we're actually cruising through here. Um, um, I have another question about theme, um, and about place. And then after that, I just, I hope you'll open up about anything that you want to share about the book or any other books. Um, so within this book, like you said, it's it's a tr it, there's a lot of travel, but there is a, a very drastic contrast between um, hot and cold Mediterranean and and snow um, throughout, and even within the uh, the whole story, which is the second the second uh, uh, story in the book, um, the the protagonist is having a panic attack almost at, uh, as a as a as a 
witness to an accident, but the panic attack starts initially when uh, the protagonist is is thinking about going back to to the upper Midwest where it's cold, um, almost as if place if place in this book many times where the warmth is um, is where the warmth of the characters live or the love of the characters lives, um, and where the cold is is a very drastic um, juxtaposition of of happiness almost with these characters and like you just said you said you sometimes you don't go into it thinking this is what I'm going to do but it seemed thematically like that was uh, very um, purposeful within this collection well you know that's a really interesting question because I think so much of what um, comes out in a book and seems to be meaningful to other people is unconscious on the part of the author. Mm -hmm. um, I did not intend that in any way. I didn't say to myself, oh, here's here's a metaphor. This is a good way to sure. do figurative writing. Um, but I, I, many people have said to me that my books are all about, are about place mm -hmm. um, and people's uh, experiences in, in a particular place. And certainly I think that's true of the stories here. But it's not as though I started out thinking like that. Right. And I think this is really good for and I, like I said, I share this I share this podcast lots of times as a as a learning tool for my students. And it actually I'm gonna have a chapter within a within a bringing podcast to the creative writing um, classroom in a forthcoming um, um, textbook next year. Um, and the reason why I love it is because I think these things and I project these things on your on your work, right? or other authors work. And I think it's so good for students to hear, don't put that pressure on yourself to create these massive metaphors within a book. Uh, because it, it, if you let yourself, it's just going to come out in you or other people or students themselves are going to place that on the literature anyways. Because I think a lot of students or budding writers like myself or, or emerging writers um, feel like they have to do all these things that writers like yourself who are so established, they think that they it's all a puzzle piece that's already put together before the writing started. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think that basically I think this is what works for me. The, the story or the, the novel or the essay has to be something, a place where I'm discovering something. Mm -hmm. If I'm not discovering something, I'm not going to be interested in it. And if I'm not discovering anything, the reader's not going to discover anything. So I usually start with a question um, or, 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 or sort of moral or philosophical or spiritual problem and see what the characters do with it. I, I never know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's fun. It wouldn't be so much fun if I said, okay, this puppet is going to the left, this puppet is going to the right, and they're going to collide in about 75 meters. It just doesn't work for me. Right. Like the magic happens in the writing and and really believing in your characters um i really i just uh, this is case johnston this is literally podcast today uh we're, we're talking with valerie minor um you can find all of her work at valerieminer.com um and her new book bread and salt came out in 2020 which i just finished reading and i adored all of the stories and uh, as a traveler myself as someone who's been very fortunate to travel for a lot of my life 
um, this was a book that I immediately clung to. Um, and I think if you are uh, just someone, a traveler, a traveler physically or a traveler of life, where you're looking at stories to to expose yourself to these places, um, I really hope you'll you'll pick it up. Um, so just the last question before we wrap up, if there's anything that you want to talk about uh, with the new book or with any other book, um, maybe um, what's your goals? Well, I mean, anything really that you would want to share with any of your readers if uh, going into purchasing this? Well, I guess what I would say is that when I started thinking about this book, I, I called it salvage um, because a lot of the stories are about forgiveness, rescue, repair, return, restoration, reunion, and you know, salvaging the natural environment or salvaging human relationships. Um, and then I decided that salvage was too gloomy a title and no one mm. would want to read a book called salvage. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I... I thought about um, the title of the novella, which is Bread and Salt. And then I thought about the fact that I think a lot of these stories are about welcoming. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly Il Tesoro, Il, Il Piccolo Tesoro is about um, being welcomed into, uh, as you say, a kind of family in Italy. Um, the this, this story Hollow, um, which is about a brother and sister and a tragedy in the family. Um, that's about her welcoming his family to her retreat. Um, so many of the stories are are about welcoming. And, and so that's why it's called Bread and Salt, um, yeah. that nourishment. Um, and I hope, as I say, there's a little bit of saltiness in it too. Yes, the, only other, the only other practical thing I'd say is that um, a couple of things that I'm part of a group of writers called Authors in Pajamas. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and um, we all volunteer to visit book clubs for free if the members of the book clubs, uh, of course, vir virtually, we do this online, mm -hmm. uh, if the members buy their books from an independent bookshop. Mm -hmm. um, and you can just find out about that if you look up Authors in Pajamas online. Um, and while I'm really happy when anyone buys uh, any of my books, um, I I encourage people um, if they can avoid Amazon to go to bookshops.org, which supports the independent bookstores. Yeah. Um, so it's fine with me if you buy it from Amazon, but it, I'd be happier if you bought it through bookshop.org. Absolutely, thank you. And I I know the perfect group or book club that for you. Um, this is I got invited there a couple years ago. And it is, it is a very, very well-read um, book club that would love for you to zoom in um, and talk with them. So I will send, I will send them your link um, uh, just right after this podcast so I make sure that they get it. Um, thank you again. This is Case Johnston. Our, our guest was Valerie Miner today. Um, and um, I just want to say thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. And it's just great to see you flourishing as an author. Makes me so very happy. And it's, it's lovely to be reunited with you. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, you know how it is. It's a hard, it's a, it's a hard industry. It's a hard life, but I love it. Take care. All right. Thanks, Valerie. Thanks.